You're listening to Daniel Reifman on End of Life Decisions, recorded live at Drusha. Welcome to our Bait Midrash. This is a topic that I've been interested in for a few years and recently uh, begun to research more aggressively. Um, it hardly needs to be said that this is a really pressing issue in contemporary society and uh, as if I had designed it, uh, it's been in the headlines uh, not once but twice uh, over the past week or so. Um, there is uh, currently a court case in uh, the United Kingdom uh, of a family with uh, a baby with severe uh, mitochondrial defect. Uh, the family has been advised by doctors in the UK that their best option is to take it off life support. The parents have appealed uh, to bring the, uh, the child to the United States where uh, doctors say they want to try various kinds of experimental treatments. Uh, the courts in the UK tend to be a little more aggressive about this than in the United States. Uh, there have been other cases where uh, British courts have intervened and uh, said that the parents essentially have to listen to uh, doctors' uh, doctors' recommendations. Um, the other, I'm told, I haven't even read the article, uh, a piece in the Ethicist in the New York Times, uh, again about uh, a child uh, with suffering from uh, serious uh, debilitating diseases, and again the question of is it better to uh, to, to allow the child to die uh, than to prolong its life, uh, presumably in suffering. Um, these are really very contemporary issues. Uh, as I said, and also extremely personal issues. There is hardly uh, an issue that people face on a regular basis. Uh, many of us will face these issues within our lifetime, whether it be our own care, the care of a loved one, um, and therefore they're also terribly personal. One of the things that I want to do tonight is talk about the way that experience and personal experience plays into the various factors uh, that are taken into account when we make end-of-life decisions. Because what seems to us sometimes to be a very kind of abstract analysis on the part of uh, bioethicists, rabbis, doctors, um, I want to say is rooted very deeply in different kinds of experiences that surround end-of-life issues. Um, often, we frame end-of-life issues, particularly in the Jewish community, as a kind of secular versus Jewish tension. And what I want to do throughout this evening is explore the nature of that tension, the way we think of the secular versus Jewish divide on end-of-life issues, and it obviously extends to other bioethical issues as well. Um, and then, after we analyze the way that we think of the tension between them, the divide between Jewish and secular perspectives, um, I then want to gradually deconstruct those distinctions and show how really every single distinction that we make between Jewish and secular perspectives cuts across both lines and is common to both sets of perspectives. And in doing so, I want to show how both systems of analysis, both the secular bioethical and Jewish traditional Jewish perspectives um, really reflect the same set of experiences and therefore fundamentally a very similar set of values in the way they go about uh, resolving these end-of-life decisions. Um, I'm a very visual teacher, 
I feel a little naked without a whiteboard uh, to use, as my students can attest. Uh, and therefore, I'm going to be using this whiteboard just to give you an outline as we progress through the class. And I want to put up, again, a very simple, uh, oversimplified schematic of secular bioethics versus a traditional Jewish perspective. I realize this distinction needs a lot to be desired. <laughs> um, secular is, of course, uh, a, a, a matter of gradations. Uh, we are all in this room influenced to some extent by secular discourse. Um, and therefore, can we really say that anything is strictly secular or strictly Jewish? Uh, and of course, when I say traditional Jewish, well, what denomination am I pointing to? What kind of sources am I pointing to? Um, we'll touch on these as the evening goes on, but um, I, I think this is a helpful dynamic to, uh, to lay out, and I hope you'll see why I lay it out this way, and then, of course, how we can proceed to deconstruct this uh, over the course of the lecture. Um, I want to frame the secular Jewish divide along two axes, and the first is as follows. We often associate the secular perspective on, uh, on medical ethics with a scientific perspective. And the Jewish perspective tends to, be group, tends to be classified as religious. If we had more time and a broader perspective, we could analyze how the Jewish perspective is different than the Catholic perspective, than the, Islam, than the Muslim perspective. Um, there are, of course, many different sects of Christianity, each with their own uh, perspective on this. Um, and, and, of course, many other religions as well. But Judaism in particular, uh, being that Jewish bioethicists are very involved, uh, disproportionately involved, uh, in, the broader bio, in the broader bioethical debate on such issues, uh, Judaism often tends to be um, a, a, a kind of um, a kind of prototype or, or um, prototype is the wrong word, um, paradigm of a religious approach to end-of-life issues. Science and religion, um, the other reason that science and religion is a useful perspective is, let's face it, so much of what has changed about our attitude towards end-of-life issues uh, comes from the fact that science has evolved so rapidly over the past hundred years. There would probably be very little to talk about this evening if not for the fact that Science has fundamentally changed the way we think about the human body. Um, science has fundamentally changed what we're able to do with the human body. Technology enables us to replace basic systems in the body. And this is what generates so many end-of-life discussions. The fact that we can substitute a system of breathing with a ventilator enables us to look at the human body in a completely different way. The fact that we can substitute uh, eating and drinking with uh, intravenous nutrition and hydration uh, or a feeding tube. The fact that we can substitute uh, the body's normal production of insulin with artificial insulin uh, or the kidneys with dialysis is what has enabled us to think about the body in new and different ways. 
and is therefore a critical aspect of why we think of end-of-life decisions uh, differently than we used to. The science-religion distinction, I think, can be further subdivided along a number of, uh, a number of different ways. A critical way that sometimes we forget, because this has been uh, kind of uh, fallen by the wayside in terms of the contemporary discourse, is the fact that science uh, gives us a sense of invincibility. The fact that technology allows us to do so much and heal so many illnesses that used to simply be fatal, people used to just waste away from cancer, and now we can actually treat it. It gives us a sense of invincibility, and for many years, fundamentally changed the way we thought about the process of death. If you look back at accounts of medical care uh, in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, there was so much optimism about the kinds of disease that we could treat. And along with that optimism came a, a really aggressive sense of, let's see what we can do. To the point where doctors would often take patients who simply had really no other choice and, and, and who came to doctors and said, uh, please, do whatever you can do, we, we have no other option, and would try out these wild treatments they really had very little hope of, uh, of succeeding. Um, and this is how many different areas of medicine that we take for granted developed. Initially, when uh, doctors proposed uh, organ transplants, <laughs> you, you read the early accounts and they're almost laughable. They didn't even know where to connect the kidneys. <laughs> they thought, okay, maybe we'll connect it outside the body and see what happens. And indeed, they discovered that if you connect the body, the kidney outside the body to the blood supply, it will in fact start to work. Um, only over many, many uh, attempted uh, organ transplants did they discover there were certain are hurdles they could not clear, the main one being organ rejection. Um, but again, the sense of invincibility pervaded the world of medicine, and it changed about the way we thought about death. Instead of death happening at home, death was now hospitalized, death was medicalized. And along with that invincibility came a sense of aggressiveness. Let's see what we can do, let's push the boundaries, we don't want to give up on it. Nowadays, that attitude of aggressiveness is often associated with religion. But I think we can appreciate that religion also serves as a counterbalance against that sense of invincibility. Religion can engender a sense of acceptance. And to drive that home, I want to look at some of the first sources in the packet, um, which we'll refer to back again, but I want to just look at them for to give a sense of how religion can, can give us a sense of peace uh, and a sense of acceptance of, of the inevitability of death. Uh, the Talmud of Tubo relates the following fascinating story. On the day of Rabbi Judah the Prince's death, the rabbis decreed a public fast and offered prayers for heavenly mercy. Rabbi Judah the Prince's handmaid ascended to the roof and prayed. The immortals, i.e. the angels, desire Rabbi Judah the Prince to join them, and the mortals desire Rabbi Judah the Prince to remain with them. Maybe the will of God, the mortals, overpower the immortals. When, however, she saw that he resorted to the toilet, painfully taking off his tulin and putting them on again, she prayed, Maybe the will of the Almighty, the immortals, may overpower the mortals. As the rabbis incessantly continued their prayers for heavenly mercy, she took up a jar and threw it down from the roof to the ground. 
For a moment, they ceased praying, and the soul of Rabbi Huda the Prince departed to its eternal rest. Very famous story, because it features prominently in virtually every analysis of end-of-life care. What's fascinating for those, for, foremost is that it's story. And stories serve very interesting functions within Talmudic legal discourse. Here we have a story that clearly has some aspect of law to it. There's something about the way that we relate to death, which is, of course, a topic that's dealt with extensively elsewhere in halakhic literature. But this is a story, and stories have a different dynamic than laws do. The values of a story are invariably more ambiguous simply by the fact that we have many different perspectives being reflected in the story. We have here, after all, not only the handmaid, who is arguably the heroine of the story, we also have the other rabbis who are praying for his, uh, for his life. Uh, we're not told why, but uh, based on other stories in the Talmud, we can assume that there's some, uh, they care about him, but there's also some spiritual value of religious leaders remaining alive and, and serving to protect or, or uh, guard the, uh, the, the Jewish people. Um, there's also the, the prince himself, who doesn't feature as, an, um, as a subject in the story, but really kind of as an object of everybody else's desires that are projected onto him. To the extent that we can establish the maid as the heroine of the story, it's her perspective that dominates. And what happens in the course of the story, as happens to most heroes and heroines, happens to most protagonists, um, is that her perspective changes. She learns something in the course of the story. She changes. And she changes from her perspective of thinking about life as the only possible good to realizing that sometimes death is the preferred outcome. Death is the preferred outcome here, not because death is good, not because life is not good, but because sometimes suffering outweighs life. So the balance here is between life and suffering. And sometimes suffering, the, the relieving of suffering, takes precedence. Again, this is not the only perspective in Talmud. There are many other perspectives, and it's really not fair to say that this is representative of all of Jewish tradition. Here's one example of how religion gives us a sense of acceptance of death, a realization of the limited nature of, uh, of human life, of the frailty of human life, of the relative, uh, of the, 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 the infinite gap between the human and the divine, and the fact that our life is ultimately wrapped up in, uh, in, in a higher purpose. All of this combines to give a sense that death must sometimes be accepted and that human beings are not in it. It's reflected even more interestingly in the next source. When Ravina came to Babylonia, he stated, anyone who visits the sick causes him to live, and anyone who does not visit the sick causes him to die. Now, the Talmud engages in a somewhat confusing analysis of this, so bear with me. How does he cause this? If you say that one who visits prays that he should live, while the one who doesn't visit is considered, he is considered as if he prays he should die, is it plausible to say that? In other words, if I don't visit the sick, is it really my fault if he dies? Am I doing something active to cause his death? And therefore, the Talmud engages in um, what my students would call a sketchy kind of uh, restatement of Rodini's, uh, of, 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 of Rodini's ruling. Rather, explain it as follows. Anyone who doesn't visit the sick neither prays that he should live, nor prays that he should die. What's so bad about not visiting the sick? It's not that I'm causing his death, Rather, 
It's the fact that I remain passive. Passivity is the worst thing that you can do in relation to somebody who's sick. If you visit the sick, you can pray that they live. If you don't visit the sick, you can't do anything. You can't pray that they live, you can't pray that they die. What's implicit in the Talmud's analysis, the way it reframes Rathibi's statement? What, what could you tease out of this, this passage? Well, Varan, Rabnissim of Corona, 14th century Spanish commentator, says as follows. Neither praise he should live nor praise he should die. It seems to me this is what the text means. There are times that one should pray the sick person should die. For instance, if he is suffering greatly from his illness and cannot bear to live any longer, as we see in Ketubah 104a. And therefore, it states that one who visits the sick help him live through his prayers, since prayer is more necessary to preserve life. But one who does not visit him not only doesn't help him live, but even when his death would be beneficial, he doesn't help him die either. If the worst thing that you can do is be passive, that suggests tenuously, but suggests to the run that sometimes it's better to be active, not in praying that a person live, but in praying that a person die. And of course, where does he get this from? He normalizes, or normativizes, the behavior of Rabbi Huda Nasi's handmaid in the story of two votes. The story now becomes a legal dictum. As the run rules, sometimes it's better to pray that somebody doesn't. Fair enough. Um, Job is a little different because he's mourning, and mourning is a very different kind of pastoral dynamic than what we're talking about here. But he's suffering also. Uh, he's suffering also. Fair enough. Um, Interestingly, who prays for death? Who suggests to Job that he pray for death? Wife. His wife. Um, his wife says, curse God and die. Job, the subject of the story, uh, refuses. Job prefers life, a life of suffering, but he prefers life. That's an interesting example that you bring up and, and we'll, we'll come back to uh, maybe a little later on. Again, religion can give us a different perspective on life um, because it strips us of that sense of invincibility that science imbues us with. Um, more recently, um, this dynamic of invincibility versus acceptance uh, has kind of become reversed. Uh, we now typically associate a traditional Jewish perspective on individual life issues with a, more, with a, with a perspective that, that advocates for more aggressive treatments. Uh, whereas the secular bioethical perspective tends toward more acceptance. That's really been a shift, uh, maybe even within the past 20 years. Um, so I don't want to uh, hold, I don't want to, uh, to dwell on this for too long. A more fundamental distinction between a scientific versus religious perspective is the distinction between rationality and irrationality. When you read bioethical literature, um, there's often an appeal, uh, explicit or implicit, to rational perspectives. And usually what they mean by that, though not exclusively, is perspectives that are grounded in science. Uh, we do, for example, uh, privilege doctors, nurses, and other healthcare professionals 
in terms of the knowledge that they have, and we say, we have a, a perspective that they have a rational perspective on the kinds of decisions that should be made. Religion uh, is often portrayed as irrational, as something that does not make sense. We sometimes depict religious, religiously inspired or religiously influenced decisions um, as something that is not grounded in reason. Um, if we take a step back from this, uh, I think we've all uh, made these kind of judgments in one context or another. If we take a step back, I think we all realize that's a little condescending. Um, irrationality is the label that I put on other people's religious beliefs. Um, when I think about my own religious beliefs, I don't find them to be irrational at all. Um, and the question then is, well, why do we do that? And what do we mean by irrational? Um, for example, to take a fairly extreme example, well, let's go with a slightly less extreme example. Jehovah's Witnesses uh, uh, systematically refuse uh, blood transfusions um, based on their religious beliefs about, again, the nature of the human body and, um, and, and such. Is that rational? There, somebody's dying without a blood transfusion and they refuse it. We call that a rational decision? For the most part, we do. Uh, secular courts have upheld Jehovah's Witnesses' uh, right to, uh, to, to follow their religious beliefs. And it's part and parcel of another aspect of why it's not right to call religion irrational, because in a society, a multicultural society, uh, you have to acknowledge people's freedom of religion. You have to acknowledge there are multiple perspectives on all sorts of issues, uh, and then nobody has a monopoly on truth. Um, the more extreme example, of course, is, um, is Christian scientists who refuse uh, virtually all kinds of contemporary medical care. Um, and again, courts have often upheld the right of Christian scientists to follow their religious beliefs, sometimes with extremely devastating consequences. Where would we draw the line? Uh, there's an interesting example that's brought up in the bioethical literature. Uh, a bioethicist talks about the Church of Fonds. Apparently there was an episode of Happy Days where they talk about Fonz as a kind of God figure. Uh, what if somebody appealed uh, in, in their decision to the Church of Fonz? We would deem that to be irrational, right? Uh, somebody appealed to a kind of faith healer. Uh, that's also been deemed by US courts to be fundamentally irrational based on which patients were treated against their will. Where do we draw the line? Areas of powers know uh, no sharp boundary, but I want to suggest that one helpful way to look at this is that as long as a particular belief is well-grounded in a well-established system of beliefs, a well-established um, way of looking at the world and conceiving of man's role in the world, um, then we consider it to be rational on some level, or we can at least acknowledge its rationality if we are feeling less condescending. Um, there are interesting gray areas, of course, where it's not about religion per se, but some kind of superstition or quasi-religious belief. Uh, I believe there was a case in Israel uh, where uh, a woman was told that uh, she needed to have her leg amputated, and without which she would almost certainly die. Uh, a woman in her 60s, you know, someone with most of her life behind her, but certainly could have lived another 10, 20 years. And she said, um, I, I, I don't want to die uh, without a leg. I would prefer to have my body remain whole, 
um, and, um, and, 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 and to forego the operation. Uh, is that a rational belief? When would we deem that to be rational? If the woman were a Holocaust survivor, would that change our perspective? If the woman had experienced her trauma in her life, would we, that change our perspective? All sorts of things we take into account when we consider what's rational and irrational. We make sense of things within our particular system of being. Now let's think about science. To what extent is science rational? Um, from a religious perspective, uh, we often feel uh, under assault from scientists. Scientists challenge all sorts of aspects of religion. Um, scientists reject religion in ways that, that often seem uh, unduly aggressive and, again, condescending. But I don't think you need to be a religious person in order to question the rationality of science. Uh, philosophy of science over the past 50 years has, of course, uh, rethought what science is and what scientific investigation is, what scientific discovery is. Uh, the, 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 the most radical change, of course, greatest paradigm shift, came with Thomas Pune's uh, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, where he proposed that scientific meaning, the meaning of any particular theory or model or experiment or even scientific observation, is a function of the paradigm within which it's situated. Human's perspective often doesn't resonate with scientists. I try to explain to scientists and they, they, they don't really get it. Scientists tend to think of science as cumulative. We keep learning new things and building on what came before. And what Kuhn argues most forcefully, and, and other philosophers of science have argued similarly, is that science is not only a process of accumulation of knowledge, but also of discarding of knowledge. And when you look back at the dustbin of scientific history, you find all sorts of interesting and fascinating tidbits. The people were once as certain of as contemporary scientists are certain of the force of gravity um, and uh, the circulatory system, and so on and so forth. We all deeply believe in the scientific model that dominates uh, in the early 21st century. Uh, you can't convince somebody that blood does not circulate in the body or that uh, apples fall from trees because of some force other than gravity. Um, but the bottom line is that science, too, is a function of a particular system, a particular network of statements and theories and models. It is a self-contained discourse. And therefore, science, too, does not have a monopoly on truth. I think that's really critical to understand, because rather than privileging science as more rational than religion, I think it's important to understand that science and religion are both discourses, both of which create meaning on their own terms, and both of which don't, aren't really meaningful for somebody who steps outside of that discourse or somebody who's not currently speaking that discourse. Not everything is scientific, and not everything in life should be analyzed scientifically. When we think about science and religion as parallel discourses, rather than one being superior or preceding the other, um, I think we can get a better perspective on what science and religion are able to contribute to the debate over end-of-life discor end decisions. And that is, the difference, maybe the essential difference between science and religion, is what Karl Popper uh, proposed uh, in the mid-20th century. Namely, that science is falsifiable, and religion is fundamentally unfalsifiable. 
And allow me to explain. Um, what do we mean when we say that science is something that's falsifiable? A critical element of scientific discourse is the ability to disprove a statement. The only kinds of statements that have currency in contemporary scientific discourse are those that can be disproven. I mean, it seems like a strange definition, right? That, that it's the fact that it can be disproven that makes it meaningful, that makes it true. But if you think about any scientific statement, you'll realize how true that is, how descriptive that is of the enterprise of scientific discourse. The reason that science can change over time is specifically the fact that science is fundamentally that which is falsifiable. And therefore, science is most fundamentally about change or progressivism. Religion, on the other hand, in the contemporary world, I think it can safely be described, generally be described, um, as consisting of a set of beliefs or statements or principles that are fundamentally unfalsifiable. The kinds of statements that we intuitively categorize as religious are typically those that are not up for debate. And this is true not only of religious individuals, but also of atheists. Atheism is, of course, one kind of, when an atheist is a participant in a religious discourse, as opposed to an agnostic who is not a participant in a religious discourse. And an atheist, try as you might to convince an atheist that God exists, you will not succeed. Try as you might to convince a religious person in a theistic religion that God does not exist, and you also probably won't succeed. It's helpful to think about religion in this way because it strips it of the kind of attacks or the kind of tension that religion exists in the science. The kinds of statements that we categorize, the way that we have kind of roped off religion in the modern world, is as those things that not only cannot be proven, but also are not up for being disproven. That's not to say that religions don't change over time, but fundamentally, the dynamic of religion is fundamentally conservative or traditional. Think about it this way. When there's an attack on a particular scientific precept, new evidence comes to light, new models are proposed, there's usually a lot of resistance. And this is one of the things that Hume describes in, uh, in uh, the structure of scientific revolutions. The kind of resistance that exists uh, within scientific communities when new models are proposed. Uh, the one that I always think of is uh, Dan Schechtman, who's an Israeli chemist uh, uh, who won the Nobel Prize a number of years ago. Uh, his area of specialty is uh, crystal structures. And when he started his work, uh, the one who won the Nobel Prize, um, he was attacked by the leading uh, physical chemists who said that, that his research just must be flawed. They didn't have any counter-arguments. They just said that his models were ridiculous, uh, including leading scientists like Linus Pauling. Um, it was only after Pauling passed away and the kind of generation uh, Past that Schechtman's, and of course with much more research by Schechtman and others, uh, that his conclusions became widely accepted. And now his model dominates the field. When scientific models are successfully challenged, they overturn the field and replace the existing paradigm with a new paradigm. 
typically, when religions are successfully challenged, what happens? They yield new religions that are separate from the old ones. That's not to say religions don't die out or, or, or change uh, in total, but often, very, very frequently, when religions are challenged, this year is the 500th anniversary of Protestant Reformation, right, where Martin Luther, uh, in, in a move that defines religiosity in the modern world, uh, challenged the Pope uh, and founded Protestantism. Right? Well, Catholicism is still doing just fine 500 years later. Um, when the Reform Movement challenged uh, traditional Judaism in, uh, in the 19th century, it yielded two new movements, the Reform Movement and the Orthodox Movement, two separate modern movements uh, that are distinct from one another. But Judaism was not transformed by the Reform Movement. The Reform Movement existed within the structure of Judaism alongside many other streets. How does this help us with the issue of bioethics? There is certainly a very high value that we place on a scientific perspective on all bioethical issues. There is no doubt from any perspective, except maybe an extreme example of Jehovah's Witnesses, the doctors, nurses, and other medical professionals have a great deal of privileged information that goes into any kind of decision. And therefore, there is some extent to which everybody within this discourse privileges science. What do we do with that? What do we do with the fact that science is in a privileged position? Or where should we put that, how should we kind of structure that privileged position? I want to propose as follows. When broader secular society, or I should say broader multicultural society, when all of us together, religious, secular, and all of our religious traditions, agree on basic principles by which we may force individuals or set standards for individuals where they must make certain decisions. Those decisions should be based on falsifiable premises. In other words, if we're going to come to an individual and say, we hear what you're saying, but really it's inconsistent with our perspective, and therefore, based on our perspective, we're going to insist that you do X or Y or Z. Our insistence should always be based on falsifiable principles. That's not obvious. As we'll see, often in the contemporary, the contemporary uh, bioethical discourse, there's a sense that there are other non-falsifiable values that should also take precedence in the debate and should also be able to be used to force individuals to take a certain so I want to propose that whenever we look at science, the role of science in the bioethical discourse, in, uh, at the end, in, in, in end of life decisions, it should be that any time we impose our will, that society imposes its will on the individual, it should be based on firmly falsifiable uh, principles. For example, if we say to somebody, somebody says, you know what, I'm, I'm ready to die, right? To the extent that we're willing to say to an individual, your, your, your disease is really very treatable, and therefore we're going to insist that you go ahead with this treatment, right? There's, there's, there's no need to decide to die. There's a perfectly acceptable medical treatment uh, at our disposal. Uh, to the extent that we impose our will on that individual, we should really be very certain that that treatment is really effective. In other words, the more well-grounded and the less falsifiable or the less 
the, the more falsifiable something has a certain principle is being. In other words, the more it's being tested negatively and shown to hold in all cases, the more we should be able to say to a person, here's who we're going to insist. That's the privileged position we should put someone in. A doctor should be able to say to a patient, look, I have the following facts at my disposal, and these facts are extremely well-rounded in contemporary scientific discourse, they've been researched, they've been shown over and over again by people who have challenged them to hold true in your case, and therefore I'm going to insist that you go ahead with this treatment, or that you don't go ahead with this treatment. One of the arguments that's been used against the family, uh, the British family who wants to bring their child to the US, is the treatment that they're seeking here uh, is, is an extremely uh, is, is, is an extremely experimental procedure, which uh, I spoke to somebody who knows a little about it, uh, has not even been tried in mice. <laughs> um, do we call that falsifiable? No, because it hasn't really been tested. Um, it, it actually makes me a little uncomfortable that doctors here are willing to advise them to do that, because that, that essentially violates the principle that I'm proposing. If we're going to suggest to somebody that they take our advice, it should be based on firmly falsifiable grounds. And when doctors in England have told these parents that there's really very little hope for their child, that is something that's fairly well-rounded uh, and, and been tested uh, in the current scientific climate. It might be different in 30 years, but that's the state of affairs right now. Uh, I just want to say that um, I'm not sure that that would hold water um, saying to somebody, you must take this treatment because autonomy is one of the three you know, major um, uh, tiers of, uh, of medical ethics in the secular world, at least not in the world. Which is why I say to the extent that. Because every bioethicist will say that there are certain cases in which we will impose our will on someone. Okay? I, I, I don't think. There are exceptions. And, uh, to an adult? How can you impose your will to an adult. adult? Or let's say, certainly to a child. Even to an adult, the overwhelming majority of bioethicists will have some red line where they'll say, this patient is just not rational. Look, there are adults who are not mentally competent. If a patient comes into the, uh, the emergency room with a serious medical issue uh, and is schizophrenic, right, and, and, and uh, is having hallucinations, would you consider that person to be rational? Even somebody who is uh, depressed Right? Has, has, has been has clinical depression. Um, that's a question that we need to, to, to figure out. Is that person competent to make certain decisions? Those are cases where psychiatrists uh, do an assessment and, and make decisions. In cases, whatever cases, again, this is obviously beyond the scope of, of, uh, of what we're going to talk about tonight. In whatever cases, we do impose our will on someone that should be firmly grounded in scientific, by which I mean falsifiable. Uh, principles rather than on other kinds of principles that we will talk about, including, for example, patient autonomy. Okay? But bear with me. Questions so far? I just wanted to add, I was working in an emergency room and a woman came in, she was 35, she was healthy, she had two kids, she was fully convinced that if you ever went on a respirator, that you were on it for life, that was her belief. She had pneumonia, and they intubated her against her, against her will. And she survived, and it was, it was very happy. Um, a, a, a friend of mine who's a, um, 
who's a um, hospital chaplain, uh, told me that very recently he had a case where um, where uh, a teenager was admitted to the hospital uh, with, with uh, very serious, uh, what they thought was very serious brain damage. Um, and the doctors advised the family there was really no hope. Um, my friend has a lot of experience and was a little skeptical of the doctor's prognosis and said, you know what, it's not time to let go. Give it a few days, wait and see. Um, a few days later, uh, he was transferred to a different hospital, uh, and then a few days after that, uh, he walked out of the hospital. Um, stories like that are often quoted as a kind of triumphalist model of, oh, see, your rabbis get better than the doctors, yada, yada, yada. Um, I tell the story only because, uh, again, there needs to be a great deal of care when doctors say something like, there's no hope. Doctors make mistakes, everybody makes mistakes. There is, I think, a tendency within contemporary bioethical discourse to let go, sometimes a little too soon. The opposite can happen also. Um, uh, you know, oncologists, for example, uh, because of the very tenuous nature of a lot of their work, uh, tend to be very aggressive. <laughs> the, 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 the often, the job of an oncologist is to be irrationally hopeful. Um, and therefore, sometimes uh, oncologists will propose uh, treatments that, again, uh, are, are kind of a long shot because that's still part of the, uh, the, the, the overriding uh, or, or a very common uh, sense in the world of oncology. Um, sometimes it's not best. Sometimes that's an area where that sense we have of invincibility is best not uh, best, best uh, left behind, and where we say this is so untested, this is so uh, this is so experimental um, that that here uh, we we should uh, we should let go. We should not heed uh, we should not heed the advice that, that really this will help you, or really this is the only way to go. Um, Rational within two different senses. Right? In other words, the one sense we're using it is, is this a rational assessment of the evidence? So it may be an irrational assessment of the evidence that if a 35-year-old woman is so the of the Or it may be a rational that 60-year-old woman you mentioned thinks that if her leg is amputated, she will, I don't know, turn into a chicken. Right? That would be an irrational assessment of the medical evidence. Right? Um, as, as opposed to saying, um, she's got the evidence right. She knows that she could live without the leg, but she's making a choice, right? And that choice is not rational. Or we might consider it irrational because would you rather live only one life and not live? But that's a that's not a falsifiable. Like that's a that's. I, I agree. That, that is different. And therefore, maybe I should make this clear. Um, I, I, I want to discard the rational irrational distinction. and replace it with falsifiable and unfalsifiable. Her statement, that woman's statement, she would rather die than the leg, is perfectly, we could consider it to be perfectly rational in the sense that she's coherent in every other way. She's not schizophrenic, she's not depressed. She's, she's an individual who, who is making a certain decision for her life. I would call that rational. I would also call that unfalsifiable because her, her desire not to live, not, not to lose a body part, um, is not something that can be proven or unproven. It, to, to talk about that as provable or unprovable is, is incoherent. Um, and therefore, in a case like that, um, we, we can't say, uh, no, we know better. Because her the reason that she doesn't want the procedure has nothing to do with a falsifiable claim. 
Which is part of my point. Science thinks of itself as privileged because it's more rational. And what I want to say is that science is not privileged. Science is different in that it is fundamentally falsifiable. And to the extent that we privilege it, it's that we as a very scientifically based society, science is influences so much of who we are as modern people. Uh, to the extent to which we privilege science, it's that scientific that whenever we make decisions as a society to impose our will, the will of the society on the individual, it should be based on science, on a falsifiable claim rather than unfalsifiable claim. I want to move on because uh, I've called this lecture uh, Legal and Moral Perspectives, and I want to talk about a different axis of distinction between secular bioethics and Jewish tradition in terms of law versus morality. Everybody's definition of morality is a really contentious point, and I want to present a definition of morality to you. But before I do that, I want to talk about the ways in which um, um, I think. Um, yeah. Um, I actually want to take a step back for a minute. Um, yeah, this, this fits better if we take a step back for a minute before we get to morality and law. Um, when we think about religion as traditional and conservative, uh, small c, um, that, I think, makes us a little uncomfortable because uh, for many Jews, religion is not conservative at all. Uh, religion is very much about reform and change. Um, I want to suggest that specifically in this area of halakha, of Jewish law, um, tradition holds a lot of sway. Um, even for Jews who don't give much credence to traditional texts and authorities in other circumstances. Um, and I think the best way to understand the way that Judaism uh, and Jewish tradition are anti-scientific is by looking at the following uh, following few sources uh, that are also invariably quoted in, in texts about end of life care. Um, the Sefer Hasidim is an interesting source. It comes from the not the modern Hasidic movement but from the German Hasidic movement of the 12th and 13th centuries. The German Hasidic movement was a, a, a deeply mystical and ascetic movement, and the Sefer Hasidim is one of the key texts that's representative of that tradition. And he says as follows about treatment of a goseis, who is somebody traditionally within the last three days of their life, somebody who's, who's, who's on his deathbed. When we not cause a person to die more quickly, this is the top of page two, for example, if there was a gosseis, individual close to death, close to the house of a woodchopper, and his soul cannot depart. We remove the woodchopper from there. And we may not place salt on his tongue so that he doesn't die. 
And if one were to saying that he cannot die until they place him in a different location, one may not move him from there. The kinds of treatment or the kinds of actions that the Sefer Hasidus talk about immediately strike us as very strange, to say the least. These are the kinds of things that we typically call irrational, superstitious, pre-modern, by no means scientific. They really don't make sense to us. What, what does a woodchopper have to do with somebody's life departing? Salt on the tongue? It gets weirder. The Shilteha Giborim, um, um, well, first we should read the Torah Hazam, uh, a text quoted, the, the, the author by the Ramban, she quotes the following Tanaitic source. A Gosez is considered alive for all matters when it may not bind his cheeks, anoint him, or wash him, or stop up his orifices. All of that is to say that we don't treat a Gosez, somebody who's on his deathbed, as if he's already dead. But now he goes on. Nor are they one to remove a pillow from underneath him. Nor are one close his eyes until his soul departs. And anyone who closes his eyes as the soul is departing is considered to be a murderer. The Ramban emphasizes how careful we have to be with a Gosez. We don't treat him as if he's dead. And moreover, we're very anxious about any kind of sudden movement that might cause him to die. Keep this in mind. The Shotaki Marim, a 16th century Italian commentary, brings these sources together and says, from here, from the source quoted by Nachmanthes, it would seem that one should prohibit that which some people do when the patient is a gosase, to remove the pillow from underneath him, saying, here's the weird part, that there are feathers which prevent the soul from departing. And several times I strongly object this to no avail. I mean, Nassan Igra has written permitting this. He looks at the, the Nachmanides and says, look, it says you can't move the pillow. Some people want to move the pillow. Why do they want to move the pillow? Not to make the patient more comfortable, less comfortable, but because they think there's something about the bird feathers that keeps the person alive. Again, weird. He then quotes the Sefer al-Hasidim. Of years, I found support for my position in the Sefer al-Hasidim. Quotes the Sefer al-Hasidim about the woodchop or the salt of the tongue. And then, he notes, this is about halfway down the paragraph, um, However, one can resolve this by saying it's forbidden to do something that prevents a ghost from dying sooner, such as chopping wood to prevent uh, the, soul, uh, the soul from heaving, or putting salt on his tongue so he doesn't die quickly. All these are forbidden, as it is implied there. And in such cases, one may remove the cause of his not dying. But it is forbidden to do something that will cause him to die sooner, and therefore it's forbidden to move him from his place to different locations, his soul departs. And therefore, it's also forbidden to place the keys of the synagogue under the head of the Gosseis, though he should die quickly, for this too hastens his death. The Shilteaki Bori, in trying to make sense of all this information, says, look, there are two different kinds of actions. There are actions which, there are things which prevent the soul from departing, and those you can remove. But there are things that cause his death, and those you can't do. What are things that prevent the soul from departing? The woodchopper, the salt on his tongue, what are things that actively cause the, the patient to die? The pillow, the uh, the the, um, the the keys under the putting the keys under his under his bed pillow. Um, you look at this and you see that he's making a very clear, nice, sharp distinction. Except 
the kind of actions you make about it have no currency within contemporary scientific discourse. We have no sense of what he thought about these actions and why some of them prevent the person from dying or some of them cause his death. And yet, these sources remain authoritative within Jewish tradition. Why? Jewish tradition is fundamentally conservative for various reasons, one of them being the fact that Judaism is religious. We tend to accrue texts over time, whereas science discards things over time as new evidence comes to light. In religion, we just accumulate and accumulate and accumulate, and you have a room like the State Midrash where you have more and more and more starting over time, more and more books as time goes on. You look at this and you say, how can this possibly be relevant? How can we, as modern people, accept this source as, as authoritative or normative in our lives? What I want to do, just briefly, is show you how it's true this source seems totally irrelevant and, and, and so foreign to the way that we think. And yet, what contemporary halakhic authorities do is they translate this kind of distinction into contemporary medical terms. Because these are religious and legal sources, point we'll talk about in a few minutes, these are accepted as authoritative. But when post-skin, when halakhic authorities apply them within contemporary medical contexts, they extract what they see as the essential meaning and make them relevant to modern life. A posseg, a halakhic authority, is always engaged in a process of translation. So that even though religion is fundamentally conservative, there is always a process going on of making it more relevant. And hence, despite the fact that religion is conservative, or within that conservative dynamic, we have to appreciate that there is a, a, a kind of progress, but it's a different kind of progress than science. We take what we have and we translate it, rather than discarding previous belief systems. The Shilta Giborian, his distinction is cited, the whole question is just a few minutes, by Ramosha Isulis, uh, who's the, uh, of course, the, one of the major authorities at the end of the early modern era, the commentary on the Shulchan Aruch, which is the major code uh, of, of, uh, of, of Halakha written uh, during the 16th. Um, and again, when he cites these kinds of actions, they don't really make sense. Different halakhic authorities take this in different directions. So I want to look at three, briefly, at three ways that Postkin have translated this distinction between woodchoppers and salt on the one hand, and uh, keys under the pillow on the other hand, into a modern, meaningful distinction. Ramosha finds Moshe Feinstein was the preeminent, uh, one of the preeminent halakhic authorities in the United States over the past century, and he says as follows. On the practice of artificially sustaining potential organ donors past the point where they would normally live until the transplant is ready to be performed. In my humble opinion, it seems it's not being done to heal him, but rather only lengthen his life in the short term. If the short term life that he lives by, by artificial means, will be painful, then it's forbidden. Here's a really interesting perspective that Rafeinstein wrote uh, in 1968, right after the first human-to-human -human heart transplant in South Africa. Uh, Rafeinstein was initially very critical of human-to-human, -human, of, of cadaveric organ donation, organ donation from uh, brain-dead donors, uh, for various reasons that are beyond the scope of, uh, of what we're going to talk about this evening. 
Uh, but one of the things that he insisted on is, look, if you're going to do this, you can't sustain the patient beyond the point where it's the patient's benefit. There's an essential Kantian point here, of course. A person is not a means to an end, even if it's going to help somebody else. You have to treat them first and foremost as an end in and of themselves. The watch only demonstrates that you have to take the patient's suffering into account first and foremost. For instance, this is the reason that one may remove something that's preventing the soul from departing when it doesn't involve an affirmative act, as the Roman explains, to prevent suffering. For if it were possible to lengthen an individual's life artificially, even when he is suffering, why would it be permissible to remove something that's preventing the soul from departing? On the contrary, one would have to bring things that prevent the soul from departing so that he would live a bit longer. If not for the fact that suffering, preventing suffering, worked as a counterbalance against the value of life, why wouldn't you have to bring salt, bring more wood choppers, right? You should have to do anything you can to prevent this person from dying. The very fact that the Ramah, quoting Yishul Bikibori, makes this distinction between things that artificially lengthen the person's life and things that would cause him to die indicates that there's some countervailing force to the value of life. And that can only be suffering, says Rufiancy. The only thing that could possibly count for the fact that we don't try as aggressively as possible all the time to lengthen the patient's life is the fact that we consider preventing suffering or lessening suffering to be a countervailing force. As we will see, Refinestein considers suffering to be one of the foremost factors in determining what you are and are not allowed to do in employment decisions. The Minchat Shlomo, or Shlomo Zaman Arbach, one of the preeminent uh, halakhic authorities in Israel in the latter half of the uh, 20th century, draws a different conclusion. He says as follows. Many people are uncertain about treating a goseis. There are those who are that just as one might violate Shabbat to save even a moment of life, so too one must force a dying patient to accept treatment so he is not master of his own life, such that he has the right to forfeit even one moment. Some postgames, some halakhic authorities, insist on the, the value of preserving every moment of life. And that surely is a very common halakhic value. We value life, we do all sorts of things to preserve life, we violate Shabbat, we violate all sorts of commandments in order to preserve human life. But it seems to me, says Rabbi Auerbach, that if the patient has experienced severe pains and afflictions, or even intense psychological pain, the woman must provide him with food and oxygen against his will. The woman may withhold the medications that are causing the patient pain and by prolonging his life he so desires. Notice the distinction that he makes between food and oxygen on the one hand and medications on the other. Where does that come from? What's the basis for that? It seems, even though he doesn't say it straight out, that he's translated the two categories of the Ramah, things that prevent the person from dying versus things that lengthen his life, um, to categories of natural and artificial treatments. What's natural treatment? Things that most people normally have. Oxygen, food, hydration. The artificial case is medications that are not normally part of everyday life. The boundary between these two categories shifts. This is actually a very influential distinction that he makes, and is influential on contemporary Israeli law, for example. Um, and could shift over time, right? What if a diabetic normally gets insulin throughout their life? Could you say that insulin stuff is artificial? You could very well say that just as normal people make insulin, the diabetic has to continue to be supplied with insulin over time. 
My point is simply that Irv Auerbach is taking what seems to be a very unscientific and irrational distinction and translating it into terms that are meaningful in modern medical discourse. The third perspective that I want to present uh, is Rav Chaim Halevi, who's really an outlier in the halakhic, uh, at least the orthodox halakhic community. Um, his position is more widely accepted with this conservative community uh, and, and also uh, uh, within the Rav community. Rav Halevi argues, and I'm going to read through it since it's a longer text, is that one could remove a patient from a ventilator, even if, they causing, even if that would cause the patient to die very quickly, uh, because the ventilator is essentially no different than all the other things that the Roma mentioned that artificially lengthen a person's life. Just like you can tell the wood chopper to stop chopping, just like you can take the salt off a person's tongue, and that's not considered to be killing the person, because you're simply removing that which is artificially lengthening this life. Rukhain Gabinolevi says a ventilator is fundamentally artificial. Where do we ventilator? The fact that it's technology replacing something in the body means it's fundamentally foreign, fundamentally other than the person's body. And therefore, he permits removing a ventilator, even if the patient will die very quickly without the ventilator. Again, for reasons that we'll discuss, he's an outlier. But notice how he takes the terms of the Ramah and translates them into a, a distinction that is meaningful in modern medical discourse. So to the extent that halakha is religious and therefore very conservative, we have to appreciate that built into religion is also a process of modernization and of change. But rather than discarding earlier texts and earlier principles, it's a process of translating them into terms that make sense in, turn in a modern medical discourse. I want to move on now to the second distinction that I posited between morality and law. Because I think this is a really helpful way to think about the distinction between secular bioethical discourse and, um, and halakha. I want to talk about the various legal and moral features of both secular and bioethical discourse, and the fact that secular discourse tends toward morality, and then the halakha tends toward law. And then I want to deconstruct it again. When I say that secular bioethical discourse tends to be more moral, I want to point to two aspects of two distinctions between secular discourse and Jewish discourse. One of them is the difference between End-focused analysis versus results or act-focused analysis. Or, if you want to be really technical about it, you can use some $5 words, you can call it. Teleological versus deontological. What do I mean when I say that 
Sector bioethical discourse tends to be end-focused or teleological. Um, one of the basic tenets in sector bioethical discourse on end-of-life decisions is what's called the equivalency thesis, which essentially means that there's no difference between withholding a treatment versus withdrawing a treatment. Why are those two equivalent, or in what sense are they equivalent? They would lead to the same thing. Whether I withhold treatment or withdraw treatment, the result is the same. The, patient is, the patient's life is not sustained, and they will die in the short term. By the same analysis, some bioethicists, though not all, uh, use this kind of argument to defend uh, voluntary active euthanasia. They say, look, let's say there are two patients, equivalent in all ways, both uh, largely incapacitated, both unhappy with their lives as, uh, as they're living it, um, but one is dependent on a ventilator, and one is not. Based on the equivalency thesis, what could I do to the patient who's dependent on a ventilator? Remove them, and they will die because they're not capable of breathing on their own. The patient is not dependent on a ventilator, is stuck. Well, why should it be any different? Both of them are exactly the same situation. It's just one of them has an out, a very technical perspective, and one doesn't. That's not fair. Both of them want the same thing. The end result, of course, here is autonomy in what the patient wants, which we'll talk about in a minute. Okay? But if I look at the results, what's the difference between withdrawing care and voluntary active euthanasia? For example, what could I do? A common form of voluntary active euthanasia. An overdose of morphine. Okay? One of the effects of morphine is it, like all opioids, uh, has the effect of uh, depressing the respiratory system. Um, and, uh, and a lot of patients die that way. That's right, that's voluntary active euthanasia. I'm saying withdrawing would be when I remove the one patient from a ventilator, that's withdrawing care, and then voluntary active euthanasia is what I do to the patient who's not on the ventilator. Right, that's active euthanasia, that's directly causing his death. Um, and those are both arguments that are frequently put forward in psychobioethical discourse. The first is very widely accepted. The second is, um, is more controversial, but still uh, surprisingly current. Um, and of course, uh, there are, uh, this, this I think is, is not well documented, but, uh, but there's, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence um, that voluntary active euthanasia is, is actively practiced in many medical settings, where uh, patients who want to die are told, often in code, um, by medical professionals, look, here's something that you might need, and they give them a large dose of morphine. Um, Halakha, on the other hand, is very act-focused. There's a huge emphasis within Halakha on the value of actions, and the nature of actions. There are many considerations within traditional Jewish sources about end-of-life decisions. What's the status of the patient? Are they a gosteis? Are they somebody who is spoken about, that we spoke about earlier, somebody who's on their deathbed, where there's all these considerations of what you can do, what you can't do? Are they a trefa, another halakhic category, somebody who has a fatal illness that will uh, cause them to die within 12 months, that has other halakhic ramifications? Um, Somehow, all of those are debated, but are less significant than one huge overriding factor. 
In halakha, we may not perform an action that causes a person's death. That's considered murder, either directly or indirectly. And as you go through contemporary sources and end-of-life care, that is by far the overwhelming factor that Poskim are concerned with. The halakhic authorities are concerned with not doing anything that directly or indirectly causes the person's death. That is very much an act-focused or deontological approach to this kind of issue. The second distinction I want to make that I will correlate eventually with morality and law is objective versus subjective. A subjective perspective, what I mean by subjective, is that it is focused on the subject. It is focused on the individual or individuals making the decision. Rather than looking at this case in terms of a category of cases, we look at this individual, what the patient wants, sometimes what the family wants, uh, sometimes what the doctor advises. Every case is treated on its own. As opposed to an objective perspective, which is more characteristic of halakha, where cases are grouped into categories and treated more neutrally without necessarily paying attention to the particular needs, desires, wants of the individuals involved. Why do I classify these as moral and legal? And what do I mean, in fact, by the distinction between morality and law? There are many different ways of defining morality and law, but the one I want to present is by a moral philosopher by the name of Bernard Gert, uh, late of Dartmouth College. Um, who wrote a wonderful book called uh, Morality, Nature, and Justification. And he offers what I find to be the most fundamental distinction between morality and law. He defines morality as follows. This is on page four. Morality is an informal public discourse applying to all rational persons, governing behavior that affects others, and with the philosophy of harm or evil as its goal. Some of this is pretty obvious. For example, uh, the lessening of harm or evil you could quibble with this point, he acknowledges. You could say, for example, that sexual mores are also moral. But he says, for the most part, when we talk about moral discourse in contemporary society, we mean things that impact other people. Rational is also interesting. And here we come back to the very problematic element of what's rational and irrational. What he means by rational most fundamentally is that you're capable of engaging in discourse with other rational people. People who are irrational, or beings who are irrational, are people we can't talk to. Animals, for example, are not rational, and therefore, why are they not rational? Not because we don't think animals aren't smart, because we can't engage in discourse with them. An essential part of moral discourse and morality for Gert is the ability for there to be a public discourse and discussion. But the most fundamental, and I think the most radical aspect of Gert's definition is that morality is an informal system, by which he means as follows. Morality is an informal public system that has no authoritative judges and no decision procedure that defines but provides unique answers to all moral questions. When it is important that disagreements be settled, societies use political and legal systems to supplement morality. These systems do not provide a moral answer to the question. Rather, the question, being regarded as morally unresolvable, is transferred to the political or legal system. 
I admit, this is a controversial point, and Gert, I think, defends it very coherently, but you don't have to take my word for it. There is no such thing, Gert argues, as a moral authority. Figures we typically associate with moral authority, who we sometimes turn to for moral guidance, religious figures, parental figures, um, they have a source of authority, but it's not grounded in morality, it's grounded in something else. Morality, Gert is arguing, is a fundamentally egalitarian system. It's a fundamentally non-authoritative system. And now we can appreciate one aspect of why morality values patient autonomy so highly. If morality is egalitarian, if everybody is an equal participant in moral discourse, then who should I listen to about this decision I'm about to make? Who is the best person, the person most affected by this decision? The patient, the family members. There is a fundamentally egalitarian turn in moral discourse, and that lends itself very much to the notion of patient autonomy that is valued so highly in secular bioethics. But morality also has a downside in being so subjective. Namely, Morality, as Gert says here, does not have any formal procedure for resolving disputes. And this is a point that I think really comes to, um, is really driven home when you read through some of the secular bioethical attempts to articulate principles of bioethics. A really prominent one in contemporary bioethics is dignity. Dignity is a cornerstone of many bioethical systems. Um, the problem with dignity shows up all over the place today. It shows up, in fact, so frequently in contemporary discourse that it can be used to mean almost anything you want. What is dignity? Maybe life is dignity. Maybe autonomy is dignity. What does dignity mean? If you look over the history of dignity, dignity actually originates in a kind of religious discourse and is used in some ways in the early 20th century to undermine a kind of liberal perspective on on social issues. Um, so dignity is really very much a Rorschach test. And I think that's true of many, many systems or many, many principles that are, that are proposed in bioethics. Uh, beneficence, for example, is another one. Well, what's beneficial? Who determines what's beneficial? Yes, it's the subject, but there, isn't often, there often isn't a way to determine what is best for the subject. Maybe we know what's best for the subject. Maybe the subject is best. Morality does not provide clear, unequivocal answers to moral questions. Which is why, even in secular bioethics, there is very often a turn towards a legal system. Here's where I want to start deconstructing this dichotomy. It's true that secular bioethics tends to be dominated by a moral perspective. But when you look at what actually happens in hospital settings, you discover that doctors and nurses don't usually abide by the equivalency thesis. There was actually a very interesting study done by two, uh, two British bioethicists where they said, look, we have this principle of equivalency thesis. Everybody agrees, everybody accepts it. But even what doctors actually do, and they're much more likely to not put somebody on a ventilator or on a feeding tube than to take somebody off. Even when all other issues are the same, even when somebody who's on a ventilator is much less likely to survive than somebody who's waiting for the ventilator, they're much less likely to take off the person to withdraw treatment, to withhold treatment. And they go through a number of arguments. Why does this make sense? Why do doctors and nurses do this? They come up with a number of proposals. For example, maybe doctors and nurses are concerned about 
fairness, right? They want to be fair to everybody. What's the best way to be fair? Treat everybody the same. Maybe they're concerned about liability, right? Another really uh, important and maybe problematic consideration from a moral perspective. That's a pretty important concern from a legal perspective. Maybe they're concerned about consistency. And the more you think about it, the more you realize that all those concerns are fundamentally features of law and the reason that we have legal systems. We have legal systems to make clear when people are liable and not liable. We have legal systems to make sure that resources are distributed fairly across the population. We have legal systems to make sure that principles are applied consistently and in a way, maybe this is the most important point, how is a doctor or a nurse supposed to decide, well, there's this consideration, that consideration. If you've ever worked in an emergency room, the last thing you want to do is by thinking about all the various subjective elements that could come to play in this case. You want a quick and dirty way to come to a decision, and that's what law provides. How does law provide that? By grouping cases very neatly and extremely artificially into all these categories that we define in terms of acts, withholding versus withdrawing. Are those artificial? Do they yield decisions that sometimes seem to be totally random or totally against the better, the, 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 the better decisions that we could come to if we had a little more time? Of course. Every legal system yields decisions that are to some extent random. But that's why we have legal systems. We have legal systems to enable us to come to decisions and to tell us when to do what without having to weigh all of the factors and therefore, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to ask you more questions, but it will make time. We'll, we'll take questions. I'll take questions at the end. Um, and therefore, it's true that secular bioethical discourse tends to be dominated by morality. But there is, I think, what is often underappreciated in terms of a very strong legal strain, even within secular bioethical discourse. At the same time, there is also a very strong subjective element within halakha in a way that's not usually appreciated, because we so often associate uh, subjective with patient autonomy. Let's be frank about it. A legal system, and halakha, as reflected in traditional Judaism, is fundamentally very legal, has to oppose or has to undermine patient autonomy to some extent. Why is that? As soon as I acknowledge there's a legal system, I have to acknowledge there is a legal authority, because legal systems have to have authorities, as opposed to morality, which is egalitarian. Law must have somebody to appeal to to make a decision. And what does a legal authority do most fundamentally? Nowadays, we don't have to listen to a legal authority. You can go to a rabbi, a halakhic authority, and listen to what they have to say and decide to do whatever you want. Fundamentally, what a halakhic authority does does not force you to do something, but determine a system of values. The values are determined by somebody outside of the subject. They're determined by an authority, and therefore more objective. And that's why, fundamentally, Jewish law cannot acknowledge patient autonomy to the same extent that psychobioethics does. Halakha is subjective in a very different sense, and I think this is something that's often underappreciated about the traditional Jewish perspective on end-of-life decisions, and, and therefore the thing I want to end with. Um, 
where does the subject enter into the halakhic discussion? We've already seen that there's heavy emphasis on the value of preventing suffering. Suffering is a really problematic issue philosophically, legally. Legal systems, in imposing their will on the subject, uh, often put the subject uh, in a situation where they have to experience pain. But pain is fundamentally something that is very subjective. No person can tell you how much pain you're in. <laughs> it's incredibly difficult to quantify pain or to objectivize pain. You go to the doctor and the doctor says to you, how much does it hurt on a scale of 1 to 10? Right? Why does the doctor not use some more objective standard? Because pain is so fundamentally subjective. The fact that halakha acknowledges the importance of pain as a factor is therefore what re-centers, what re-centers the subject in the middle of the picture. And that's expressed most fundamentally, again, by Ramosha finds. Most poskim, as I say, most halakhic authorities fundamentally um, make a distinction between basic needs, like oxygen and food, versus things that are more artificial, like many kinds of medical treatments. But when we look at the way that Ramosha Feinstein articulates the importance of oxygen or food, it's invariably about the patient's experience. Here's what he says, for example, about oxygen. The top of page five. Regarding a patient in dire condition who cannot breathe, one must apply the oxygen, even though he cannot be healed, in order to relieve him of suffering. The point of the oxygen is not to sustain his life because we think there's a value of preserving every moment of life. There is. But the most important thing for a fine scene is suffering. And again, when it comes to nutrition and hydration. The next chupa, similar to response in above, you ask regarding a patient in dire condition who cannot eat on his own, before must feed him intravenously in order to lengthen his life if it is in pain, for not eating will cause him additional pain. It's obvious that one must feed him things that are not harmful, but they certainly strengthen him a little. Again, the point of feeding him is to strengthen him, to affect the patient's own experience. Even if the sick person himself does not feel it, and even if his caretakers are not aware of it. And it is not at all similar to giving medication. The reason is simply that eating a natural thing that is necessary for life, and even animals require food. It is natural. But watch what he says now. And we feed the patient against his will only in the sense that he is an adult and does so of his own accord, though not because he wants to, but rather because others are pressuring him to do so. When we force a patient, or when we induce a patient to take artificial nutrition and hydration, in what circumstance do we do it? When they prefer not to have it, but they're willing to bend to our needs because we say to them, look, this is what's best for you. However, to feed him in a way that is genuinely coercive, such that one must hold him to force feed him, one may not do so to a competent adult when he doesn't want to eat. And all the more so if he thinks that eating is detrimental for him, even if the doctor says it is good for him. This is actually an incredibly contemporary point, because in the various tensions that exist in the legal and moral realm, uh, in American society, for example, one of the means that patients have chosen uh, much more recently in their lives is voluntary cessation of nutrition and hydration. Um, dehydration in particular is an unfortunately painful way to die, but what doctors have discovered is that through pain medication, through palliative care, uh, and other, uh, other techniques, uh, ice chips, uh, um, uh, set, um, hydrating the mouth, but not the rest of the body, 
uh, a lot of the pain can be relieved, and it's actually uh, a remarkably common painful way to die. According to Ramesha Feinstein, one could justify that, again, for an end-of-life patient who has no hope of, of treatment and no hope of recovery, uh, one could justify that based on the fact that suffering is ultimately the most important concern for this kind of patient. What's fascinating to note is that when Israel, uh, when, when the Israeli government was drafting its, uh, its uh, end-of-life care bill, it was passed in 2006, um, there was a committee, I think of 59 uh, rabbis, bioethicists, uh, and medical professionals who were gathered to, to, work, to work on this, uh, on this bill. And like everything else in Israel, uh, it was subject to the religious-secular divide. Uh, and mainly, the, one of the main sticking points was this issue of patient autonomy. Shouldn't a patient have a right to decide? Uh, there was a lot of back and forth. Uh, there was a lot of resistance to any act that could, uh, that would, in the short term, lead to the patient's death. Ultimately, the main compromise that allowed the bill to be approved by, I believe, about 80% of the committee members, which, if, if anything in Israeli society is a group about 80% of the broad spectrum of, of the country, you know you hit, you know you hit gold, um, is this position of Moshe Feinstein, that if the patient is suffering and is competent and has no hope of cure, um, there is this halachic position, very prominent halachic authority, um, that they can deny all forms of care. If you look at the bill, it's actually interesting how they parse it. For example, uh, they encourage the patient to continue hydration as much as possible. Why hydration? I actually thought initially when I read it, it's because, as I said, hydration is a very painful way to die, except that, that now we've developed techniques that, that make that not true. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, the same friend of mine who's a, who's a chaplain, uh, spoke to Avram Steinberg, who was the, Dr. Avram Steinberg, who was the head of the commission, and he said it's because hydration allows the patient to live, uh, is, is more critical to the patient's survival uh, than nutrition. A patient can survive for much longer without nutrition than hydration. What hydration does is allow the patient to die of natural causes, which is the most halakhically acceptable for, for, for a broad, the broadest range of halakhic authorities. So again, Ramosha Feinstein's emphasis on suffering may not be the same kind of subjective perspective we find in psychobioethics, but from a traditional Jewish perspective, it's a really powerful and, 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 and uh, an important way to recenter the subject uh, as the focus of these bioethical decisions. So what we've seen, again, just to summarize, is that to the extent that there are certain divides and certain dichotomies between secular and traditional Jewish perspectives, a lot of the dichotomies upon closer analysis actually dissolve, and the picture is much more complicated. I think when we look at the full picture and understand what both Holocaust uh, authorities and secular uh, medical professionals and bioethicists are doing is trying best to balance all of the various needs. When, for example, medical professionals prefer clear and sharp guidelines, for example, the distinction between withholding and withdrawing, that's because their experience as caregivers demands a certain kind of clarity and, and, and immediacy to the decisions that they make. When secular bioethicists, and in a different way, uh, Ramosha Feinstein and other halakhic authorities, privilege uh, the patient's perspective, that of course reflects uh, a very modern view um, that uh, we all, uh, we, we have to think about death 
uh, in a way that isn't monolithic, uh, and that sometimes, as much as we value life, uh, we understand that sometimes it's, uh, it, it's the right time to let it age. Uh, I'm happy to take questions. I realize we're a little over time, but for those who'd like uh, just two minutes, maybe, just uh, for, for a few questions, and then we'll, we'll break from there. Okay, so so I, I haven't addressed the issue of competence, which obviously complicates the picture significantly, and, and various ways in which patients are incompetent uh, are, are complicated in different ways. Um, what is recommended nowadays, the people write living wills, where they express well ahead of time what they want to happen. Um, and those are acknowledged in, in, in virtually all legal systems as a genuine, authentic expression of the patient's will. Um, things get more complicated when there is no living will. Um, the case, for example, of Terry Shiro, when she was uh, clearly incapacitated, and one of, the, one of the critical issues was, were various conversations that she had before uh, this tragic event occurred, uh, do they reflect uh, her genuine will uh, not to be kept alive by artificial means in a persistent vegetative state? Um, that's a different kind of discourse because we're not talking about persistent vegetative states from a halachic perspective. We're talking about patients uh, who are, are, uh, are going to die in the short term, which is not exactly the same thing. But again, uh, the non-competence uh, can become quite complicated and is really beyond the scope of what we're going to discuss. And then, of course, as I mentioned, there's the issue of uh, mental illness um, or, or other kinds of, uh, of, of, of uh, what we could legitimately call irrationality from a psychological perspective uh, that, that also complicate the issue. perspective of the patient is not expressed in terms of patient autonomy. It's expressed in terms of our responsibility uh, to relieve the patient of suffering. Right, but then it seems like a, not a great model for the law of because, because in those, like the, the model of people deciding to um, you know, reject nutritional integration, right, it's, it's really about patient autonomy. According to this, uh, you should respect that as long as they know it, but on the side, you should actually Except it's clear that Ramosha defers to the patient in terms of what suffering is. Because suffering is inherently subjective, because the patient's pain can only be known by the person, um, pain is defined much more broadly. A patient who does not have a will to live is suffering psychologically, and, and, and virtually all postgame who acknowledge suffering as a factor don't make a distinction between, uh, between physical and psychological pain. Um, it's true that Ramosha says if the Ramosha Feinstein says if the patient is not conscious, you should you should give them uh, you should feed them intravenously. But if you look at the at the uh, the, the response on page three, uh, he says the opposite in a different case. He says if the patient is being sustained in order to be an organ donor, um, that's not allowed even if the patient is not conscious and can't object. Why? 
uh, look at the last paragraph. Uh, and regarding that which doctors say that he no longer feels pain, one should not believe them, for it's possible they aren't capable of knowing this. <laughs> what doctors have actually discovered uh, over the past 15, 20 years is that we know much less about the state of a comatose patient than we thought. Comatose patients, for example, uh, when they wake up from a coma, they sometimes recognize the voices of people that they had never met before, but whose voices had been around them while they were comatose. Um, we know much less about, than we think we do, about what's going on in someone's brain. Again, fundamentally subjective per se. Yeah? So I work in the healthcare field, and what I'm seeing um, is typically um, because of the, um, patients who are on dialysis, um, who are, say, mid-80s on dialysis, have decided not to put their pain, but this is not the quality of life they want anymore, because I would move to dialysis, they know they're going to die. Right, so again, quality of life, uh, in, term, in a whole lot of terms, will be framed as an issue of suffering. Um, yes, yes. If the patient expresses a, a lack of desire to live, and again, we're talking about a particular kind of patient who's an end-of-life patient, um, where without dialysis they will die in the very short term, um, then that is an issue that's taken seriously by health authorities, and, and in which there are grounds to say, yes, they can Again, this is not meant to be a practical guide. The, the, the kinds of halakhic decisions that get made um, for those who just defer to halakha as a system of meaning uh, are really very complex, but the outlines of halakha uh, and the halakhic factors are, I think, well represented by the halakhic authorities we see. Thanks for tuning in to Balancing Acts, Legal and Moral Perspectives on End-of-Life Decisions, recorded live at Drisha. To download more of our podcasts and Shiurim, subscribe to our iTunes channel or go to www.drisha.org for more online and in-person learning opportunities. Drisha, deep learning, committed life.